0: A Living History Production
1: This is the
0: Living History podcast broadcasting live across the
1: airwaves
0: Hello and thank you for joining us for another episode of Living History This is a really exciting one I'm very happy to be bringing this to you For the past six months or so, I've been living in the UK. I'm back in Australia now, but I had an amazing experience living and working in the UK, visiting historic sites all over Western Europe, meeting some incredible historians, speaking at festivals and doing a whole range of wonderful things. And as part of that, I launched with my good friend Peter Hart, a brilliant historian, an idea that we called History in Six Objects, where we would go to a museum, we would find six objects that tell a tale and use that, to tell a really engaging history story. And that's what we're bringing you this week. We went to the National Army Museum in Chelsea in London. And if you haven't been there, I really suggest you do. It's a fantastic museum of British military history. And while we were there, we told the story of the Battle of Waterloo, uh, an incredible battle that most people find compelling and engaging. And I tell you what, our visit to the museum really reinforced that. It's an incredible battle. And this was a great way to tell the story. So what you're going to hear this week is Peter and I walking around the museum discussing specific objects that tell the story of the Battle of Waterloo. If you enjoy this, there is a video version on YouTube as well. So if you go to the Matt McLaughlin History YouTube page, you'll find Peter Hart and I. ...walking around telling the story of Waterloo relics. Now, before we jump in, I just wanted to say a thank you to our subscribers, as always. Uh, we love having subscribers who get bonus content and, and a lot of other exclusive things that they can only get through subscribing. And there is a bonus episode this week just for subscribers, which is an interview with Peter and I... ...talking about walking the battlefield of Waterloo and what you can see and the top to to see if you're visiting the battlefields today. So check that out. To subscribe, uh, just click on the link in the show notes and that'll take you to our Patreon page where you can get that exclusive content. In the meantime, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening as always. And here is Peter Hart and I exploring the National Army Museum. I'm Matt McLaughlin. I'm Peter Hart. We're here at the National Army Museum in Chelsea, in London. And it's time for another History in Six Objects. Pete, what are we doing today? We're doing the Battle of Waterloo. Let's get to it. Pete, our first object is this really quite wonderful painting by Lady Butler, known as a few different things, the dawn of Waterloo. The Valley, that kind of thing, yeah. I mean, have a look at it though. This shows British troops before the battle. It's not something we often talk about as what was happening before the battle, but obviously essential
1: to the story of how the troops actually got there. Um, what does this say to you, Pete? Well, it's, firstly, I like the focus on the ordinary soldier. I mean, there are officers in it, but there is a heavy focus on soldiers waking up. Imagine what it was like, you know, it had been chucking it down, there's the echoes of the storm up there, it has been chucking it down and they're wet, they're probably cold and there they are And, and... there's just some lovely, lovely detailed work on it. And I th- the atmosphere is great. You not know, think it's just you, it's you are not there, but you get a feeling of what it must have been like and uh, cold and wet, I don't think. <laughs> cold and wet. Look at the embers of
0: the fire. This guy's under his coat. There's just so many things and of course we've got the officers riding along blowing Rivelli to say get up, you know, night's over, time to get on with your job and little did they know what was coming up for them later and, that night. and I,
1: th- I think she's got the, the 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 idea of dawn and the the passing storm i just think it's it's very emotive it's, it's a an, cracky bit of work
0: it's an unusual military depiction as well isn't it because yeah. often especially from this time this was the era of napoleon on his grand steed and and huge battles and charging cavalry this is a real insight into you know as you say just the common man and and you know what he
1: was experiencing in the lead up to the battle and you can see the nerves you They're not all. They're not laughing, are they? I mean, several of them are are clearly thinking about what lies ahead of them, and what lies ahead of them is one of the most murderous uh, battles of of that time. Did
0: the common soldier know at this stage that today he would be facing Napoleon on the battlefield of Waterloo?
1: I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, I I think I think it's obvious Wellington's taken up the position. Part of it depends on what the Prussians do, because if the Prussians had gone the other way and retreated, not come towards, then. Uh, he would have had to retreat. So I, I presume a lot of them were aware that this might be the day. and that It might be the day they die or get maimed or whatever. Pete, it's a, an incredible depiction
0: of this unit before the battle, but I understand when it was created, this painting, there was a couple of crafty little things that the artist did to help her imagine the scene.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's a, that in itself is a story, Matt. If you, because what she did was she wants. She's not an expert on Napoleonic stuff. It was in 18, what, 1895, 80 years later. So what she did was she went around junk shops and, and things and bought. Items of uniform and things uh, to, to get the pick. And then, by repute, and I have to say this is just something that's been told to me, she, she actually got a regiment to trample over a field to sort of get the idea of how it would have looked. I I think that, uh, that's fantastic. And I, I understand this has been especially conserved and, and, and renovated by the National Army Museum. And they've made a great job of it, I think. it it It's very powerful. And uh, it's a big part of the story for me. I just want to think of a time when you could walk into
0: a junk shop and buy relics from the Napoleonic battles. We were born too late, mate. We were born too late. Born too late. But just a fantastic painting. I love it. The
1: the other point about this picture that that just comes to me, funnily enough now, is that this could have just as well have been an after-the-battle scene. I mean, you just... I mean, he could be dead, not asleep. and I, I think that must be deliberate, that she's, she's gone for an echo of, 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 of what the future would be for some of these men.
0: I thought it, I thought it was. When we approached this, I thought, I thought he was receiving medical treatment. I thought this guy was dead. You're right. That's absolutely deliberate. She's seen works of art that depict the, the horror and the aftermath of the battle, and she's wanted to marry that together with these men yeah.
1: in the days before the battle. It's a brilliant piece of work.
0: I love it. The item we're going to look at, Pete, now is not, well, it's not a single item, but we're going to look at some items that tell the essential part of a story of a battle, the weapons that they used. Obviously, we're talking about fighting. We're talking about an army's ability to take on another army, and that's done with weaponry. And this is the place to start. Uh, You know, artillery, cannons. I mean, again, probably not what people first think of when they think of the Battle of Waterloo. They probably think of charging cavalry and infantry and the whole thing. But artillery was essential.
1: To it's the, to it's the battle, not it? Probably the biggest killer on the battlefield. Uh, when you think of how many guns there were, and they fire, what forty-two thousand cannonballs—that—that that, that level of 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 death and destruction dealt out by uh, by by this sort of cannon—they're just smoothbore. They're very simple weapons. They're loaded at uh, the, the barrel. They're, they're, there's nothing sophisticated about it at all. Uh, so tell me what they were shooting, because every
0: time we see a depiction. Of any battle, at any stage in history, what we see is infantry marching and huge explosions as artillery flies in. Was it like that at the Battle
1: of Waterloo? No, an awful lot of it would be uh, cannonballs. Uh, so about that big, depending on what size the cannon is, but about that big. Uh, and uh, they, 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 They're just loaded in and, and, and fired. Uh, and then the, 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 a deadly weapon that I almost can't imagine how deadly it was is canister. Which is sort of like a, a thin tin case full of of, of of musket balls, essentially. So it's like a giant shotgun. Du- giant shotgun, and they could double load them as well. God, and and if you were if you were within three three hundred yards or four hundred yards, it would just <laughs> just rip you apart, rip rip a formation of infantry apart. Uh, they also had shells, which were. So again, spherical and, and, and would explode with a fuse, but they, they, were, they, they, they weren't full of shrapnel so much uh, often as uh, they were fired by howitzers. Uh, different, different. Uh, uh, but we had shrapnel. Uh, we had shrapnel shells as well, so we were a bit. That was one thing the British were ahead on. So talk, let's talk about this idea of
0: shrapnel without getting too technical about oh. it. <laughs> the the word shrapnel has now come to apply to any fragment of an exploding shell, but in this era, it was a very specific weapon. Yeah, in,
1: was in, invented by Major Shrapnel. I think what was it? Was a, and basically, it's it's just a. a, a, a musket balls, again, lead balls inside a thing, uh, and, and when it explodes, it pushes them out. And it exploded in the air? In, in the air, yeah, a timed fuse. Uh, uh, and uh, they could be fired by these, and the French didn't have them. Uh, I'm not, we're not experts on this, but when you see these actual weapons, you, you think, well, that's not complicated, is it? Uh, And this is, I mean, it's in front of a a picture of of the olden days, even for then. Uh, The point is, they were in, they were in use a long time. And that applies to a lot of the the weapons of the the Battle of Waterloo. This is not fought with newfangled weapons. There are a few, but mostly it's fought with things that have been in use for the best part of a hundred years. It's a sort of culmination of death and mayhem on the battlefield. Uh, And and, and in the 19th century, it starts to move on.
0: And, Pete, you've got a quote here from someone who was at the Battle of Waterloo that describes, in pretty graphic detail, the horrors of coming under artillery fire.
1: Absolutely. It's from an Ensign Keppel of the 14th foot. And and this is horrible. He says this, around shot took off his head. It was a bugler and splattered the whole battalion with his brains, the colours and the ensigns in charge of them coming in for an extra share. One of them, Charles Fraser, a fine gentleman in speech and manner, raised a laugh by drawling out, how extremely disgusting. (laughs) A second shot carried off six of the men's bayonets. A third broke the breastbone of a lance sergeant whose piteous cries were anything but encouraging to his youthful comrades. And that's, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty horrible. If you want another one, another one. Uh, we had three companies almost shot to pieces. One shot killed and wounded 25 of the 4th Company. Another of the same kind killed poor Fisher, my captain, and 18 of our company. Another killed or wounded 23. At the same time, poor Fisher was hit. I was speaking to him, and I got all his brains. His head was blown to atoms. And that, uh, that, that was uh, Lieutenant Hugh Ray of the 40th Fort. Wow.
0: Pete, hey, what I'm hearing here, which is consistent with everything... We do. You know, we've talked about Gallipoli. We talk about, you know, we talk about Waterloo today. We talk about the Second World War. There's a consistency that comes through this, which is the absolute horror of being under artillery fire, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's just one aspect of the battlefield that is repeated time and time again. You come under artillery fire and it's absolutely horrific. Did we, you find that in your experience of speaking to veterans, that the concept of artillery fire was a major component of their battlefield? That,
1: that, is, that is the biggest thing, whether you'd be talking about... I mean, even on the first day of the Somme, artillery is the main killer. That's it. And uh, and throughout throughout all the campaigns I've ever interviewed about, uh, artillery has been the biggest killer and the one that most emotionally scars the men. Because you never somebody can adjust something in the Second World War or later adjust a, a, a mechanism, and it, that's you gone. And uh, it, it it it's it's a terrible business.
0: What does that do to a man when he's on the battlefield? This distant killer, men that are hundreds of yards away, possibly kilometres or miles away zeroing in on his position and he can't do a single thing about it what does that do to a man on the
1: battlefield well it it, it unmans them a little <laughs> it's not good for the morale uh and uh and and then you get back to waterloo where you can see the guns and you know what they're doing and when you have to form square because cavalry are about well you're in a square Four deep square or three deep square. And you are the easiest target one can imagine for the, for the guns. And they're, they're s- s- splattering you, and you're being splattered, as in those quotes, with with, with brains and everything, because you're just an easy target.
0: It's just horrific, and it's why it's so important to stand here and actually see this weapon mm. and that, know what that represents. That, it's, that, it's, it's crucial.
1: It, it's almost harmless looking.
0: <laughs> it is. Impotent. It looks impotent, but it was anything but. Pete, we've just talked about artillery and moving on to... Other weapons on the battlefield. I mean, this is the essential one. We're talking about the muskets, the rifles that the men carried. Good example here. What are we looking at?
1: Well, th- th- this is, uh, well, it- this, it's, it's called a new land uh, a pattern musket uh, uh, and bayonet. There it is. Uh, but it's known, it, there are many patterns, but it. it comes in about 1720. It's still in use in about 1840. It's essentially an all bog standard. Musket, uh, which means it's it, it smoothbore. Uh, it, it's a flintlock. It's uh, it, it, it's it's amazing. It is known as the Brown Best now. Why is it called the Brown Best? Why is it's, it called the Brown Best? <laughs> oh, who knows? It, it could be because the metal was, was dyed brown. It could be because of, it's, a, it's a euphemism for a, a, a woman of the night, said he okay. carefully. It could be a lot of things, and I don't know why it is. What I do know is that this is what a lot of the ordinary British regiments were, were armed with. And what I like about this is, is that it, is, it sums up the whole point of training. Because the only way to use this weapon is to fire it in volleys, massed volleys. You you couldn't hit a barn door with it at 100 yards. So you need to fire all together, and it's effective up to about 80 yards or 80 metres, but from about 50, up to 50, it's deadly. Can you keep your nerve and hold fire? What about letting the other side fire first? Well, well, that might kill a load of you, and you can imagine so the officer has to control the timing of, of a volley. Uh, then you 've got the oh, you 've got the, the, the sergeants, the nCOs who 've got to control what 's going on amongst the men they 've got to make sure that they don 't panic, try and stop that and of course, the men have to keep their nerve now to load that. There are 11 separate movements. Don't ask me to name them. <laughs> and and if, you, if you lose your nerve or rush it or in any way screw it up, then you'll get, uh, you'll get a misfire. It just won't fire. Or it'll go off at half cock. Or you'll fire, you'll fire the, 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 the ramrod. You'll fire that off. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. And you have to be able to do that. The idea is to do it three times a minute. Uh, possibly four two's not good enough uh, and it's 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 just it, you need to be trained you can't just be a farmhand and be expected to do that oh, you, you couldn't do it you and I couldn't load it once in an hour <laughs> <laughs> I remember
0: accounts from the American Civil War talking about uh, muzzle loaders and talking about that in the heat of the battle the panic that came over men that after big battles, they would find several shots loaded in the barrel at once because they'd missed one of those important steps, gone to fire, and it hadn't fired, and in the heat of the battle, they hadn't even realised, reloaded the next shot, and, of course, they just clogged the whole thing up. So a, a, a fascinating depiction of the panic in that moment of trying to load when your life's at risk. But the other thing I notice is quite a lengthy bayonet on the end, and I've heard accounts of, uh, of officers saying that no man was ever bayoneted who
1: hadn't put his hands up first. Was that the account at Waterloo? Was that the case at Waterloo? Was no, the bayonet an important no, no, no. The, the bayonet is an important weapon at Waterloo. Not so much in infantry v. infantry. If you are a column's advancing on a line, they will break up before they get anywhere near the bayonet, usually. Uh, what, what that was useful for is in, when they're in their squares, because it's the bayonets. That, that hold back the cavalry, that the horses, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the main use of the bayonet. Uh, it, it, altogether, it's a, a simple and primitive weapon system, but in the hands of people who keep their nerve, know, who know what they're doing, who fire low, don't aim high, because that's their the, the recruits, they'll fire, they aim high. It is. It is just... Well, to me, it tells a great part of the story of Waterloo. And, and, you know, when you're looking at how the infantry behave in battle, it it, it all comes down to often how many rounds can they fire in a minute.
0: The thing that's interesting about this, Pete, is that the technology wasn't static, you know, over this period of time. And if we just go up here, we've got something which demonstrates the evolution of technology that was occurring at about the time of the Battle of Waterloo. So here's... uh, It looks ostensibly the same. We short
1: well it 's a bit shorter uh, it 's a Baker rifle and, and um, it, it 's the next thing because this has a, um, a, a rifling which spins a bullet it 's more accurate, so you can you can hit an individual person at a much longer range, so you 're not dependent on volleys on massed volleys you can and so this was the weapon that was given to a lot of the rifle. Uh, rifle battalions. Uh, That's and why they're called rifle battalions, yeah. not they? Because they carried <laughs> rifles as opposed to. So it was. <laughs> A and B, it comes together. <laughs> it all comes together. And, and but this is the future. That The, 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 the Brown Bess is the past. But it's still another 20, 30, 25 years before it, the, 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 the Brown Bess is, is not issued anymore. Uh, it, and, and this does take. It's slower to load. You can fire only one or, well, two, two rounds a I minute. Mean, it makes a difference. Was
0: Waterloo a, a, a transition time in the way that the First World War saw a big evolution of technology, the Second World War saw a big evolution? Were the
1: Napoleonic Wars a, a, an evolutionary time or were, were they just relying on technology that they had at hand? I think, in essence, they rely on past technology. I'm not an expert on the period. I'm, I'm interested in the period. Uh, I, I find that most of the technology is... an the old, the old, the old ways and And the, um, the newer things, like the Baker, they are coming in, but they aren't dominant. I mean, this is uh, the, the, the weapon of a very small proportion of the Allied army. Uh, most of the, for the French skirmishers, they still had uh, muskets. So this is, this is a sign of the future. But they are t- most of it, the uniforms, everything. And, of course, there wasn't much fighting for, for what, 30 years after, after Waterloo. So that's the next big step. And even then, the Crimea, for instance, is not that far on. Uh, a lot of it is recognizable. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just
0: about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless every day to get 30 30 to get 30 every day to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so
1: give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
0: switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees Promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
1: everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too
0: We've talked about weapons, obviously instrumental to anything that goes on to a battlefield, but this is a human story. We're talking about people here, and it's easy to read a history book or talk about weapons and casualties on the battlefield, but we've got our next item just talks about that human cost of being wounded on the battlefield. We've got a bone saw and a bloody glove that was used in an amputation at Waterloo.
1: I mean this tell you, please i mean part of it i mean it, it's uh, the bone saw was used by, uh, by 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 the surgeon who sawed off the leg of uh, of the earl of oxbridge uh, now he'd had a good battle up to then you could say <laughs> He'd led that famous... Well, he'd, he'd ordered the famous cavalry charge that wrecked uh, the, uh, one of the great attacks that Napoleon launched earlier, uh, the first great attack on... Uh, and he'd had a good battle. But then he was hit, uh, and uh, his, his leg had to be amputated. Now, that is the actual... Bone saw that was used, and that is the glove of one of his aide-de-camps who held him down. Uh, and well no, no, no uh, anesthetic, obviously. <laughs> no, a, anaesthetic. a shot
0: of rum and a stick between the teeth, and, away
1: and, you go. and it, 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 I want you to picture how they did it. They basically so they 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 they, they tie they put a, a tourniquet on about three inches above the the site of where they're going to cut. Wow! And then and then they use a, a sharp knife to cut away down to the bone. They tie back the arteries and then they, uh, and then they get the bone saw out, that bone saw, and they saw through it quickly. Tie the arteries up and then wrap it in linen bandages.
0: But they had to, didn't they? Because this was an era where medicine was primitive. And, uh, you know, we're talking about these weapons and slow-moving musket balls, cannonballs loping through the air. These are going to do horrendous Injuries to, to men on the battlefield, and if you don't get that limb off, it's going to turn gangrenous, and the man's going to die. Yeah, because so this is this was a, as horrific as it is. This was the only way to save a life with this primitive medicine.
1: And uh, it, it it I just look you look at that bloody glove. And I'm not swearing there, Matt, but a bloody
0: glove. Yeah. It is a bloody glove as opposed to a bloody glove. Yeah. yeah. I, the thing I, I note here, Pete, not to be flippant, but look how intricate the handle is on that bone saw. I mean, the work that this
1: is designed to do, but it's got quite a flower, uh, decorative handle on it. It's, it has to be quick. Yeah. Because you just die of shock as well as anything else you can die of. Well, the surgeons prided themselves
0: on how quickly they could get a leg off, didn't they? Because it was a, you know, it was you'd see outside the rudimentary hospitals piles of discarded limbs as they yeah. as they did their their horrific work. But uh, it's important to remember this stuff. We we shouldn't come to a magnificent museum like this one and just look at at guns and flags and, and, and the triumph of war. We should talk about what this means on yeah. a human level. And I think so many years after the event, that's what we always have to drag it back to. These were people. These were like you and me. These were like anyone who's watching this now. These were human beings who went through a very human experience, a horrific experience in many cases, yeah. and there's nothing that sums it up more than this display. No, nothing. We shouldn't forget, Pete, that the Battle of Waterloo spelt a pretty significant defeat for Napoleon... And the French, the end of his time as an emperor. Um, This item, our next item, sums that up very well. This is, well, it's a standard. It's a flag that was carried into battle. It's written in French, so I assume it was carried by the French. (laughs) Um, But this is the sort of thing that was not supposed to be captured, was it? It was uh, representative of the regiment. It was their pride. They marched under the colours. And the fact that it's now here in a museum in London indicates how wrong things went for the French.
1: That's right. And there's the eagle. That's the, the real sort of, that, the eagle, is what sort of, that was, it's like our regimental standard that, that we used to carry into battle. The eagle, and that's a, to capture the eagle. And this uh, eagle and this banner are, as you can see, from the 105th Regiment. They were in the attack on the, the left, the British left, at the start, uh, about one o'clock. Um, it, it was captured by, uh, who's captured it? Um, uh, uh, Captain Clark. Uh, I understand. I think he had help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he had help. And uh, but the, 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 it, in itself, it's a story because that he chose the eagle rather than the lion or the or, or the the cock. Right? You know? <laughs> so he chose the eagle, uh, and he issued them in about 1804, 1805 when he became emperor. And then when the king came back after Napoleon was exiled, they they, they scrapped them all. Napoleon comes back, eighteen fifteen. They make a whole load more, and Napoleon issued them to, to, to his regiments before. so sort of like a hundred he issued before Waterloo, and 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 this it it in fiction. You always, if you have a fictional story, you always have the hero will capture capture the eagle, and that's it's like. And it it who do you think it will it it it, it goes back to something else, which is the Roman eagle as well, in my view, and that's the imperial roman eagle and that's what napoleon's doing i think so uh and there is it that is the actual banner carried into action by 105 105th regiment there's their eagle and it's a fantastic story and guess why there aren't any more there aren't any in french museums because when the royalty came back louis the 16th or whatever he was 17th 18th stupid system uh when he come back 18th uh there were they're all destroyed again. And so the ones we captured at Waterloo, or this one, I think, uh, here it is.
0: What did it mean to the men? What do you think that meant to the men when they had marched into battle under that banner? And plenty of them would have seen that banner fall. I mean, how, what effect did that have? Was that, that the end for them? Was that a, this is the end of our regiment?
1: Uh, no, they carry on. They were in retreat anyway. That's <laughs> how they got it. And they, they were pushed. They, they certainly went back into action later on. But the, 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 it meant an incredible amount To the officers and men of a regiment, it really did. And um, there's this great story, which I I suspect is urban myth, if they had urban myths in in the the 19th century. But that when the king came back and all these were destroyed, that uh, some of the regiments, the officers burnt the standards and then uh, put the ashes into their wine. So that they ca- always carried it <laughs> with them. <laughs> I really hope that's true. I hope it's true as well. But uh, I hear. think it's great. This is a uh, peculiar
0: exhibit, Pete, but I think we... Oh, it's we, fabulous, isn't it? <laughs> well, actually, we've got a whole corner here dedicated to Napoleon. The object we're going to talk about is Napoleon's horse. Well, the skeleton of Napoleon's horse. Um, a bit of a murky story about whether this was his horse and how it came to be captured and, and the whole bit. So, his, what, Marengo, his name.
1: Marengo, He's yeah. A horse. It was um, an, an Arab grey. Oh, an Arab grey. What, what, what do we know about this horse? Well, uh, uh, it's definitely a horse. <laughs> it's uh, it, it was just kept. Uh, it was captured at the battle. Uh, well, it was captured in 1815. I think there is a murkiness, and I think you spotted it there. Uh, I believe that it's feet are not necessarily from the same or, or hoofs <laughs> or whatever you call them things that go on the end of it. And it, it, to me, it's just... I like, it, it is mostly Marengo, I think it's yeah, the, there. Yeah. And therefore, it may have been at the Battle of the Waterloo, and it may not, but whatever that used to have Napoleon on its back. Now, does that not set That's your crazy. juices going a bit? In this little corner, i mean, I mean, we've got... We've got element. We've got a lock of
0: Napoleon's hair. We've got his ancient water type <laughs> heat. I don't know what that's called, but it was to heat water. <laughs> um, we should talk a little bit about Napoleon because a, a, an up and down career. This was the end of his career, obviously. What what happened on this battlefield marked the end of his career.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm one of those people who think he was a great man. Uh, I think he got an awful lot of people killed, and toward at times in his career he was. Um, Erratic, and I think Waterloo is not his finest moment. But then he was faced with two brilliant Allied generals, uh, Blucher and Wellington, and, uh, and they performed brilliantly against him. And I think that's... It, 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 in the end, Napoleon failed. And, and uh, the, the, there are people who say he came from nowhere and he conquered everything. He didn't conquer anything in the end. He ended up uh, in exile... Uh, dying in exile, but he was on that horse. That horse in front of us. That's I, I've got a simple mind. <laughs> I keep going back to. I could just almost picture him. Um, well, let's yes. talk about horses though on the on the
0: battlefield because cavalry. We've got cavalry. to talk about cavalry charges. We've all seen the incredible depictions of the charge. I mean, scary, incredible paintings, but terrifying in uh, in what they represent. Cavalry charging down lines of infantry. That was a key. Well figure the, the battle was if
1: you could get if you caught them in column or line the, 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 then you've got the i mean that's quite a small horse um but the British heavy cavalry when they smash into derland's corps when he, they attack on the right that each one of them is this bloody great big horse and then on top of it a bloke a big bloke with a g- huge great sword and, and the kinetic force if that's the right word the kinetic force is incredible and and this is what they call l'arm blanche it, it's it, it's terrifying and the only real way to stop it is to be in square with those bayonets locked into the ground and to and and so that there's no flank to go round so that you know, they they can't gallop around you and come at you from behind. Uh and cavalry, they they're a mixture of the, one of the most potent deadly weapons on the battlefield and completely useless against the British square or, or or actually Hanoverian Square or any of the other squares. Uh but it's worth remembering that when you formed a square, what happened? You were vulnerable to artillery. And uh, and this is the, this is the the question: When do you form square? Because if you form square and they don't attack with cavalry, they just pound you with the artillery. But if you if you go into column or line and the cavalry attack, then you you're you're in a lot of trouble.
0: You're in uh, the infantry in 1815. Pete, do you want to be? Would you prefer to face down a charge of heavy cavalry or a, oh, yeah. <laughs> an onslaught of the artillery? <laughs>
1: I'd I, I prefer to do neither. <laughs> I'd rather be a so-called historian and, and, and pontificating from afar. Um,
0: I'm being I, silly, but it, it raises an important if, point, doesn't if it? You're out the horrors of, of the battlefield. If
1: you're not in the square and the cavalry attack, you're probably going to be dead. Uh, it's a murderous and efficient weapon for destroying broken infantry. Uh, the artillery will kill a lot of you in a square, but they won't kill all of you. I think that's the sort of thing.
0: Well, that's why it's such an important part of the exhibition. Yeah. I mean, it's Napoleon's horse, but having a horse here when we're talking about Waterloo,
1: yeah absolutely essential. We we, we need to mention it.
0: Pete, if we want a bird's-eye view of the Battle of Waterloo, there's really no better tool than this magnificent model. I mean, what are we looking at here?
1: Well, we're looking at here at Cyborn uh, William Syborn's, uh model of the Battle of Waterloo. And I'm filled with admiration for most of this. <laughs> I think... It's a fantastic piece of work. In a way, both, we both love personal histories. And this is the ultimate result of his investigations, his personal histories of the battle. He contacted every surviving British and possibly some of the German officers. <laughs> Not the Prussians or the French. It is biased, and he ignored the German officers. But they but he produced this. It, it uses 700 interviews, and if you think of that, when, when 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 we write one of our books, we don't use 700 interviews. Uh, and he used it to create this magnificent model, which was about what 1838, I think it, it was finished. Uh, so it's within living memory of the battle. It is an amazing piece of work. Um, it's got about thirty thousand individual figures on. It, it 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 covers the battle perfectly from the British uh, perspective. Uh, well, talk to me about that. About the, there's a political angle to this, isn't there? Oh because no, there's a, there's
0: a rather <laughs> large chunk of the story missing.
1: There is a huge chunk. The that the, the the German nations fighting for the British are, are are underrepresented. They're not properly in the story. It isn't an English or British army. It is an Allied. The Dutch, the Hanoverians, all the other German small nations involved. But most of all, who's missing? Who? Who?
0: The Prussians. Where the, are the Prussians?
1: Well, there's Planckswar way over there. Where are the Prussians? Well, it's just completely out of the story. It's as if it's a completely trivial, unimportant part of the battle. Yet, the British, Wellington, they're one part, the Allied army, they're one part of the story. The Prussians is an equally important part of the story. That's a small part
0: of it. Didn't the Prussians have 50,000 men here on yes. the battlefield? That's a <laughs> lot. That's, that's nearly the same size as the entire French force. Yeah,
1: the Prussians, they, the, the, the Prussians there, are two, there are two heroes. Blücher and Wellington. You don't have to denigrate Wellington to appreciate Blücher's contribution. I I don't like that. I mean, to me, they're both great generals. Uh, I think you'd probably want to go for a drink with Blücher rather than Wellington. Uh, But that's the point. Wellington
0: would have seen this model. Like, this is not something that was recently created. This was created... For Wellington, Wellington would have stood not in this museum, but Wellington would have stood overlooking this same model. And
1: it is. And w- was that was that an element? Were they trying to appease? Oh, Wellington? I I think so, definitely. Uh, Wellington was prime minister as well for periods of the intervening. Not you know. And the thing is, this is this is meant to be viewed from here. From, this is meant to be viewed from this side, from the Allied Ridge. Uh, now, I think. This model presents us with a chance to, to, to have a real look at the battle, to talk about what's going on. You can see some of the great elements, can't you? There, look, Hougomont. there it is. You know, and you see why it's important. Hougomont, uh, uh uh La Haye Saint, the the, the ridge, you've got uh, the the Plantnoi, you've got it's all there and uh, best is to go there. Well, do you not
0: agree? This, this is something I wanted to say as well. Is the first thing about this is it was, again, designed in a time before television yeah. where people couldn't get their head around what they were looking at. They'd maybe seen a few artworks and that sort of thing, but this, there's nothing like seeing this. We see the same thing, incidentally, in the Australian War Memorial with the beautiful dioramas to tell the story of the First World They're War. They're fantastic. There was a, this in the, time, in the era before video technology. How do you bring the message of how huge a battlefield was and how many people were involved? to people who hadn't been there. This is the thing. But as you say, we can still do that today. There's there's almost a way of time travelling that I know that you and I love, which is to get out yourself and walk the ground. And doesn't this, I, I have never been to the Waterloo battlefield. Oh, you must go. But doesn't this excite me about getting out there and seeing the ridges laid out, seeing the key villages, seeing where the where the armies were lined up. I mean, this is why we've got to get out. I mean, you've been there, Pete. What does it tell you about the battle
1: when you walk the ground? Well, for instance, I mean, Hoogamont, what a place to visit. And it's, uh, you know, the story of the gates. Some of those stories are a little bit... Not exactly spot on. Embroidered? (laughs) Embroidered, yeah. But there is embroidery going on, but... There's the whole story as well it's still a fant- it's a battle within a battle and the story of how the french attacked and the, and 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 the, and the germans and the, the and and, and the, the guards who held it, it it is a great story and you know you can look at the garden you can look at the field around it, you can look... the woods gone uh, the woods gone uh, but you can look at it you can look at the north gate you can look at the south gate the rest of it 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 it's, it's it's exciting, and that's just one of many things. But I love Plantsville. I think I'm just perverse. So <laughs> I love the, the church at Plantsville. The fighting was just as big. And, of course, that's something you can see on the ground. It's not on this model because this model is made to underestimate or to under-represent the oppression the, the and achievement. But when you're on the ground, you can go to, to Plantsville. You can look around it and see it. But what a, what a place. What a, what a and, and do you know it's mostly on the spot? There's a big motorway cutting through here. But other than that, uh, uh, off sort of this corner. But the rest of it is pretty well as it was.
0: The other thing that I think it's important to note when you look at models like this is we've been talking about weapons, we've been talking about rifles and muskets and things. But this demonstrates the importance of artillery because the, throughout the model are little bumps in the ground and little high points and on just about all of them is a battery of guns designed to fire down into what
1: is lower ground below them. The grand battery of the French, uh, you know, a concentration of guns. Again, there's questions as to whether there really ever was a grand battery. I don't really care because when I was there, I just went and looked at one of the two possible sites and just thought, wow, this is great. (laughs) It may have been here and it may have been there. I'm not bothered. I'm still getting the feel for it. Uh, The ridge has been spoilt a little because they built a gigantic mound. For the, for the uh, William of Orange uh, that's, uh, so, so the ridge isn't quite as dominant as it was On the other hand You've got this sort of mound That you can go up And I tell you You need to be fit to get up those stairs I'm not sure uh, You're getting old, Matt <laughs> my, Your legs might struggle a bit going up there Well, we've been up ridges at Gallipoli you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you might, you know, might, be you on. might struggle
0: Yeah but that's the thing, high ground. We talk about high ground. We've done it at Gallipoli. We've done it on the Western Front. And it's, we're going to sound like a broken record, the importance, particularly in these earlier battles, the importance of the high ground. And doesn't this illustrate it perfectly? Absolutely. If you were going to set up this battle, you'd say, well, that's where I want to be. A long ridge line looking down over my enemy, perfect place to be.
1: And, and Wellington apparently spotted it early. I mean, again, people argue about every single aspect of the Battle of Water, it's part of its fun. Uh, but I believe that he spotted this early and always had it in mind as somewhere that he could use for a def- one of his famous defensive battles. And uh, what a battle it was. And it, it is actually very compact. The number of dead in such a small area and afterwards waterloo teeth you, you've heard about Waterloo. No. Te- well they, they used the teeth uh, for fault to make false teeth so people talked about waterloo teeth because they got teeth made because there were so many bodies so many it's it's and that that it's details like that that make you realize what a, a bloody horrible terrible battle it was
0: thanks for listening Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.